This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And it's once again that time in the week when we answer your COVID-19 questions. Now, here in the city of Chicago, more than 50 percent of residents 16 and older have received at least one shot of the COVID vaccine. And already over three million people in Illinois are fully vaccinated. As you've been hearing here on WBEZ, Chicago expanded eligibility on Monday. And as vaccinations have ramped up, CPS high school students are now back in classrooms. Meanwhile, starting today, all mass vaccination sites in Chicago will start accepting walk-ins. And travel restrictions in the city are easing. Travelers from Iowa and Wisconsin are no longer required to follow COVID mitigation orders. Vaccination rates in the U.S. are the highest in the world, but that's not the case for other countries. Only 1% of the population in South Africa is fully vaccinated. Even key countries in Europe, like Germany and Spain, have only vaccinated less than 7% of their population. Well, joining us now to make sense of all of this is infectious disease specialist Dr. Mia Teramina from the DuPage Medical Group. Doctor, we talked earlier this week, but so much more has happened over the past few days. Um, At that time when we spoke, uh, the country's COVID death toll surpassed 3 million, and it's continuing uh, to rise every day. Uh, That number is actually around the same as Chicago's population. So what are your thoughts as the number of deaths go up? You know, we are are hearing numbers that are just mind-boggling. There was a day this past week where uh, 315,000 people died in a single day in India. And uh, this is just unbelievable when it comes to this crossroads where we have the possibility to to mitigate this completely. Uh, we need to continue to push forward with our vaccine efforts. And while it's, again, as you said, a tremendous that we have a vaccine for every eligible adult in the United States currently, um, we're going to have to start moving our efforts to helping our neighbors across the world because we don't beat this unless we can beat it worldwide. Uh, and that's what's going to end this global pandemic. And and that was 315,000 cases in a day in India, uh, not deaths. Uh, yes, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> That's the, the biggest, the highest day they've ever had. How are COVID cases and deaths looking here in Chicago and the suburbs right now? 
you know, they're coming down somewhat. So we're, we're having, um, you know, the rolling positivity rate has gone back under 4% uh, in the state of Illinois and Chicago. I believe it's uh, still around that 5% range, but we're seeing that tick down in the right direction, which is very encouraging. Uh, the death rates are, are down, but what we are seeing in the hospitals are um, patients presenting sort of more than 10 days into their symptoms. And, and that might be a factor of folks uh, thinking that uh, they're young, healthy, maybe haven't had the chance to get vaccinated yet, and they'll feel better tomorrow, and they'll feel better tomorrow. And by the time they get to the hospital, we have uh, very little outside of supportive care measures to help them. So at this point, if you are unvaccinated, if you are having symptoms or have had a high-risk exposure, certainly get tested and seek help. Uh, we have the ability to give things like monoclonal antibody infusions to our most vulnerable patients, and that's something that is of greatest benefit very soon after diagnosis at a point where you may not have significant symptoms at all, but you might have risk factors to have a rougher course as the days go on. So that's the opportunity to intervene and really um, be that bridge to vaccine that we need. The pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the, the one-shot vaccine, uh, due to reports of rare side effects, that continues to be a big story. Doctor, uh, the, the city is currently awaiting FDA approval to restart administration, but do you know the status of that vaccine? So they're meeting today. Um, we hope to hear um, by the end of business today about a possible restart or removal of the pause that we've had on J&J. We have uh, very, very many uh, candidates for a vaccine that is sort of a one-shot vaccine. This remains an excellent tool for us to be able to use getting into communities and, and uh, vaccinating folks that are not as uh, mobile and able to get to two separate vaccine appointments and things like that. Um, the hope would be that uh, the pause is not only released, but uh, hopefully with very few limitations on where we're going to be able to use this. But I look forward to seeing what uh, the results are of this committee uh, as to if there's going to be any modifications as to who qualifies for the single-dose vaccine. You mentioned the fact that the J&J vaccine was, was bringing more access to underserved communities. Do you know how much progress was made before the pause? So we had about 7.5 million doses of J&J &J vaccine administered, and we've had over 200 million, 214 million doses of vaccine administered nationwide. So it was a very small part, but poised to be part of the drive to get into these communities. So thankfully, a lot of the uh, folks that were going into homes and giving vaccines in a more mobile way were able to substitute Pfizer and Moderna vaccinations. It is going to necessitate another trip around in order to get back to these folks for their second dose. But as soon as we are able to uh, remove this pause and uh, adhere to whatever uh, modifications and indications uh, are being presented, um, I think it's going to be a very valuable tool uh, to get to some of the patients that we just aren't able to reach at this point. We're unfortunately getting very close to a plateau in, in vaccine where the supply of vaccine is outweighing the demand that we have. Um, we have vaccine available. We have walk-in appointments available. We have, for folks that are interested in getting vaccinated, the ability to schedule appointments in the next day or two or three. It's not a waiting game any longer where you have to wait a week or more to even uh, start to schedule. So um, we want to be able to get every single person who wants to be vaccinated, vaccinated, and then begin to have more serious conversations with those who are hesitant. Well, let's hear from a caller. We've got Sue on the line from Lincoln Park. Hi, Sue. Hi. What's, what's your question for the doctor? Um, I'm wondering if it's safe 
to swim laps indoors once you've been fully vaccinated? That's a great question. Uh, great to speak to a fellow swimmer. Uh, swimming uh, remains one of the safest sports uh, simply by virtue of the fact that you are fully bathed in a, in a, in a pool of chlorine. So this remains one of the safest, uh, exercise activities, uh, wearing your mask all the way until you get in the water and taking your mask and putting it back on when you get out of the water. Um, lane sharing should be something that, uh, you are doing with other folks that you are friends with or are fully vaccinated or live in your household. Otherwise it still is advised to try and keep one to a lane when possible. Um, but, uh, I, I see this as, um, an activity that goes very well, especially if you're fully vaccinated. Let's talk about the variants for just a moment, doctor. Um, the UK variant has become dominant in this country. Tell us what we're seeing in terms of case verifications. So now that we have this variant uh, being dominant, one of the most common questions I get is people want to, quote unquote, be tested for the variants. And what's happening here is we just don't have the capacity to test every single person for every single variant. So the testing that we have available will test positive if you have wild type COVID or if you have one of the variants. And then of all the positive tests in a single day, uh, at the state level, they do batch testing of a random uh, selection of positive results in order to sort of do a sampling in the communities to see what variants are being expressed and at what percentages, and then they can extrapolate further. The challenge is, is we are seeing some of those breakthrough cases where people legitimately have been fully vaccinated, a appropriate amount of time has passed since their completion of their vaccine, and then they're going on to develop some symptoms and are, in some cases, testing positive. We have the ability to check antibodies, but we're not yet certain what levels of antibodies render the greatest amount of protection. So the question becomes, is there a possibility? Possibility this individual has been infected with a variant? My answer to that is yes, but we can't necessarily take every single one of those samples and say, please check this further. Mm. The management is largely the same. And we know that the available vaccines currently give us a significant amount of protection against the UK variants, but no vaccine is 100%. So we have to kind of push forward toward herd immunity and maintaining all of the mitigation strategies that have worked thus far. All right, well, let's jump back to the phones. And speaking of recreational activities, like our last caller talking about swimming, Gretchen in Lakeview West has a question about playdates. Hi, Gretchen. Welcome to Reset. Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. I have a 14-month-old son, and I'm curious. We've been very conservative and really haven't taken him anywhere um, or let him be exposed to any friends or really other family. And I'm wondering how it's safe or if it's safe to start letting him uh, see other adults. Um, he, he's, you know, grandparents, friends of ours. Uh, we, he also has a three-and-a-half-year-old cousin that I'm curious if he can play with. Um, that cousin is in daycare, so I'm hoping you can speak to um, what's safe to do with a child under the age of two. So children under the age of two obviously are not going to be ones that are able to wear masks in any reliable way. Uh, the three-and-a-half-year-old uh, certainly is in a daycare setting and is going to be encouraged to be masked uh, the majority of the time, although social distancing is, is highly difficult at, at, at that age. We do know that um, when all adults are vaccinated, interacting with unvaccinated children is something reasonable within a household or two. So having the grandparents come over or you uh, and your family meeting with uh, 
your your uh, sister or brother and their family and their kids and all the kids obviously have not been eligible for vaccine but if all of the kids are healthy and all of the adults are fully vaccinated and we have no more than two households uh, interacting indoors in general the CDC guidance indicates that this should be a relatively safe occurrence so once we move outdoors and we're able to get outside more and enjoy some of the nicer weather that's to come this becomes even less of a risk but in general child to child transmission and even child to adult transmission is much much less than adult to adult or adult to child transmission so the biggest thing we can do to protect our kids moving forward is vaccinate ourselves as adults if you're vaccinated but your kids are not is it safe for the family to fly Ah, it's a tough one. You have to take in so many different factors here regarding, you know, the health of your children and, and everything. Um, having a child that is not able to maintain masking on a flight, there is going to be that that small level of risk. The hope would be now that 26, 27 percent of the entire country is uh, vaccinated fully, that almost everyone flying, you're going to have a significant portion who have been fully vaccinated, partially vaccinated, and then, you know, the chances that there's someone that is unvaccinated in close proximity to you do exist. So to the extent that you have a healthy child and travel is something that is more of the necessary variety, um, I think that we can be in an okay place to do this, but it's not without risk. When do we expect that young kids will be eligible to get a vaccine? So, boy, do I ever want to know. Um, <laughs> our 12 to 15-year-old uh, kids, emergency use authorization for Pfizer has been applied for. And depending on the sources, you will see anything from statements by uh, Pfizer saying, we expect to be able to get these kids vaccinated prior to the school year, all the way to, we expect to get vaccines in arms in a matter of weeks, as soon as, you know, this coming month. Um, I hope uh, that it's the latter. I hope that we are able to start getting these kids vaccinated, even in the early summer months, so they're well vaccinated and protected through the summer and into the school year next year. Uh, for our six-month to 12-year-old kids, first doses have been given in trial. Second doses are due soon. And the projection is for data uh, in the second half of 2021 with vaccines in arms end of 2021, early 2022. And we can only hope that that pace will continue to move forward. Let's jump back to the phones, Dr. Sharon is on the line. Sharon, what's your question for the doctor? Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for the show. Dr. Termina, if a person already had COVID and then got a test for having antibodies, how long does the antibodies uh, last in that person? And should that person get a vaccine? Um, and how long do the vaccine antibodies last? Thank you. Those are those are great questions. So when you've had natural immunity from having COVID and recovering, the vast majority of people develop their own antibodies around days 10, 11, 12, right around there. Those antibodies should be strong enough to last at least 90 days. Um, many people still will show positivity for those antibodies much longer than 90 days, but we don't know how protective they are, which is why the recommendation remains that all folks who have recovered from COVID do get fully vaccinated. And at present, that's with a full vaccine series, not just a single dose of uh, the Pfizer or Moderna. It's with both doses. You can get vaccinated as soon as a couple of weeks after you've been diagnosed with COVID. If you've had your first dose of vaccine and then get COVID, you can get vaccinated with your second dose as soon as 14 days later. 
Um, and if you uh, are otherwise healthy and want to wait a little while, you can wait up till 90 days, but there's no need or requirement to wait until 90 days. If you've had both doses of vaccine and then had COVID prior to developing those full antibodies, like maybe you test positive for COVID right after the second dose, so you know you don't have that full antibody effect, there are no booster doses indicated. You're still considered to have complete vaccine series. Let's hear now from Carol in Winfield. Hi, Carol. Go ahead with your question. Oh, hi there. Um, I received uh, both of my Pfizer vaccine shots in my left arm in March. And since then, I have developed uh, swelling in my ankles and also have sciatica in that leg, that side of my body. I was wondering if there's any relationship um, to the vaccine in those particular conditions. So to my knowledge, that would be the first that I've heard with something kind of uh, a delayed side effect that appears to be unrelated to the site of injection. Uh, that being said, I, I encourage you to get on those uh, websites to go ahead and um, report all of the symptoms that you're experiencing after vaccine for tracking purposes. So there's links right on the CDC page for uh, vaccine reporting and to uh, be a part of, you know, just the, the long-term studies that are going on regarding these vaccines. There are some people that have underlying inflammatory conditions and things like that that may have a mild flare after vaccine, so I can see some joint swelling or discomfort. Uh, but to have that sciatic type pain, it's something I would definitely speak with your provider about to see if that has any relationship whatsoever or may be an entirely separate issue. Doctor, on side effects, what other side effects are, are people having? Are, are there ones that people need to be concerned about? So the most common side effects remain injection site reactions, discomfort at the injection site, which could be something that's right away, or it could seem that the arm is doing just fine, and then a week or more later, you might get some swelling, redness, maybe itchiness, a red patch on the arm uh, that can be consistent with still an injection site response um, you know, a week or so later. Um, the second most common uh, is going to be fatigue and, and kind of those mild flu-like symptoms. And then fevers are in the mix as well. Um, people generally report more significant side effects after the second dose versus the first dose. Women, uh, women tend to have uh, more side effects than uh, men do. And uh, folks that have recovered from COVID already at some point anecdotally do report sometimes some more significant side effects that they're experiencing as well. But in general, all of these side effects are relatively short-lived. And the vast majority of folks, it's only a day or two and um, certainly much better than the COVID illness itself. Doctor, I'm going to squeeze this one in as well. This is from a listener who emailed us named Maureen. Uh, she's going to get her second dose of Moderna in a couple of weeks. And she says, if I experience those flu-like symptoms after my second shot, is it okay to take Tylenol as I normally would for a fever or body aches? I've heard that it can make the vaccine less effective. Doctor, I know you've addressed this before on the program, but quickly. Reminder. Yes. Uh, after you have been vaccinated, you can absolutely take Tylenol or ibuprofen if needed, especially if you're having significant side effects. It's not advised to take these medications preemptively. Wait until your body does its thing. And if you become uncomfortable, certainly take medications. All right. One last caller before I let you go. Here's Max in Westlawn. Hi, Max. What's your question for the doctor? Hi, doctor. Thank you so much for taking my call. I am vaccinated and got my second dose a few weeks ago, but work with a few people that are not. And I was wondering what my risk of possibly infecting them was. 
the risk is very low. Um, we don't have any absolute zeros, but it is unlikely if you have no symptoms, even if you are exposed to coronavirus, for you to carry any meaningful amount of virus and spread it to another person. Obviously, you should still be masking out of an abundance of caution and courtesy to your coworkers until they're fully vaccinated. Um, and just in general, if you develop symptoms that are classic for COVID and may have had an exposure, then certainly you would want to get tested and evaluated. But People without symptoms who are fully vaccinated are highly unlikely to be able to spread this virus. That's Dr. Mia Teramina, infectious disease specialist with the DuPage Medical Group. Thanks so much, doctor. Talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.